Hello, welcome to the final Keith Shelley podcast of 2020, or possibly the first of 2021. My name is James Kidd. Six years ago, I accepted the challenge to learn John Keats to autumn off by heart and recite it too. Over the past few weeks, I've tried to repeat the trick with a rather shorter sonnet, Bright Star. I've split the difference by writing a short piece about what the poem has meant to me this year, 200 years after its mythic composition on the Maria Crowther as Keats sailed from England to Italy. Okay, here goes. Bright Star. Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, not in lone splendour hung aloft the night, and watching with eternal lids apart, like nature's patient, sleepless eremite, the moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores, or gazing at the new soft-fallen mask of snow upon the mountains and moors. No, yet still steadfast, still unchangeable, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast, to feel forever its soft, (laughs) to feel forever its soft swell and fall, awake forever in a sweet unrest. Still, still to hear her tender taken breath, and so live ever or else swoon to death. I've spent quite a lot of the final months of 2020 thinking about John Keats' sonnet, Bright Star. The reason, at least to begin with, was researching John Keats' two-month journey from London to Rome in the autumn of 1820. Two hundred years later, we retraced his progress by wind-powered wooden ship and horse-drawn cart on Google Earth's map. The platform's mix of interactive satellite imaging, text, pictures and video seemed worlds away from the privations of life on board the Maria Crowther. And yet the virtual attempt to follow Keats day by day made me consider his anguished reality more vividly than I'd done before. For example, when we plotted Charles Brown's desperate race against time down Britain's east coast from Dundee to London to say goodbye to Keats before he sailed for Italy. Brown ended the journey moored beside the Maria Crowther at Gravesend, without either friend having the slightest idea how close they were they would never meet again. John Keats' final journey also brought me face to face with arguably the most famous episode in the whole voyage, the story of Keats' last poem. The drama takes place on the final day of September, somewhere on the Dorset coast. Lulworth Cove is the destination of choice. After almost two weeks during which the Maria Crowther was battered by storms and then becalmed by no wind at all, 
the ship stopped one final time to replenish its supplies. Keats went ashore with his travelling companion, Joseph Seven, and for a short time explored the caverns and grottoes, as Seven put it, of a nearby beach. It would be the last time Keats set foot on English soil. Returning to the ship, he sat down, opened the copy of Shakespeare's plays he'd brought with him, and right then and there wrote Bright Star on the page opposite a lover's complaint. The story of Keats' poetic swan song gained romantic velocity from the Maria Crowther's long-delayed departure the very next day, as if his imagination were bidding adieu to England and his muse with one final heartbreaking moment of genius. Sadly, Seven's myth was just that, mythic. Perhaps he'd seen Keats reading a handwritten version of Bright Star transcribed some time before and mistaken it for spontaneous composition, for the truth was rather different, if no less certain. Most editors agree that the poem was composed at least a year earlier, probably when Keats was on the Isle of Wight, working on the poems that would appear in his final volume, and collaborating with Charles Brown on a play he hoped would make him a marriageable prospect for Fanny Braun. The irony that this attempt to confirm their relationship separated Keats from his fair love insinuated itself into the fourteen lines, as did the vision he saw night after night out of his bedroom window. This was the Capella Comet, which for a few days was visible in English skies as it blazed a trail across the universe. Keats connected it instantly with Fanny Braun. I've seen your comet, he wrote in a letter. Even this version of events has been disputed. Was Bright Star actually written another year earlier, in October 1818, with a different woman in mind, Isabella Jones? This wobbliness seems oddly fitting for a poem which ebbs and flows, proceeds and retreats, declares itself only to eat its words. It's a poem I assumed I knew, much as I assume I know I want to hold your hand, or to be or not to be, or it's tricky. In my memory, it was an expression of yearning for immortality, something signalled most obviously by eternal and those forevers, but also by the repeated ever-present participles, watching and then gazing. A poem, in other words, about time. In the opening octet, the means for accessing eternity is art, and by the sound of it, the kind of epic poetry Keats had aspired to in 1819 with Hyperion. The lines progress with a stately grandeur, forcing the reader to be patient and watchful as meaning is deferred time and again. It requires three increasingly elongated clauses to discover what exactly the bright star is watching. Hung aloft whispers of loftiness, aloofness, and even a kind of celestial painting, visible but out of reach of its mortal spectators. Lone splendour nods towards the heroic individual ascending towards infinity and possibly beyond, clambering high enough to gain a panoramic, transcendent view of humanity in all its variety. The sestet brings us down to earth, but with hopes that this too might beat a path towards heaven. These six lines ache for an ideal, erotic love, figured as a kind of never-ending cuddle, echoing the perfect sympathy and synergy imagined in Ode on a Grecian Urn. Forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. The trio of negatives in Bright Star, not, not, and no, 
suggest this craving to capture the ineffable or mutable in art might be beyond Keats, which doesn't mean that it isn't worth the mad pursuit. Reading Bright Star in the final months of 2020 while working on Keats' final voyage, and then muttering it over and over as I tried to learn it by heart, recast the sonnet in completely new ways. For one thing, it made me realise what a weird poem Bright Star is, one that boldly hurls a glorious, incandescent metaphor into the skies, only to question it, reject it, not once or twice, but three times, before trying to remake it in the artist's own, if impossible, image. To imagine an emotional, sexy, romantic, living and breathing form of love that soars towards the infinite and can be fixed without pinning it down like a butterfly. Some of these tensions were present from the Big Bang moment of inspiration. The star that may well have inspired the sonnet was a comet, itself in constant motion. And in any case, the stars we see in the night sky are constantly changing, and most of them are already dead and gone. The significance of context in shaping the poem is again oddly fitting when the subject is a star, something we only see twinkling like a diamond, thanks to the surrounding blackness of a night sky. My sense that the first version, written on the Isle of Wight in 1819, was preoccupied with time, seemed reinforced by the make-or-break pressures bearing down on Keats at that moment. Running out of money, and suspecting, however dimly, that ill health might cut short his life force, he was attempting a now-or-never bid to write a hit before his pen had gleaned his teeming brain. If the weighty literary stakes hover around the sonnet's opening eight lines, the equally significant consequence that commercial success would facilitate marriage to Fanny Braun haunt the final six. Does this double urgency explain that of the original version's opening line, with its double exclamations, the second of which was later removed? Bright star! Exclamation. Would I were steadfast as thou art! Exclamation. A related problem, as Keats was discovering that summer, was that these twin hopes in art and love were more dueling than dual. The thought of pressing writing deadlines had decided him to quit Fanny Braun, who tended to play havoc with any resolution. Not only did separation have a positive impact creatively, it revealed a relationship that seemed to work best when each party was in a different county. The irony that the temporary disconnection was intended to enable a permanent connection was not lost on the poet. Bright Star's aspirations towards boundaryless unity are suggested by its single rolling sentence, which, depending on your point of view, either overcomes the 8-6 division of the sonnet's 14-line form, or is dashed to pieces upon it. Keats' circumstances in 1820 altered the poem before my very eyes. One phrase that leapt off the page higher than before was moving waters. This was partly because I remembered the earlier version of the poem in which Keats had written Morning Waters. The hint there of fresh, untainted and youthful existence is displaced by a sense of perpetual motion, of transience, of time and life and history swirling continually. Only now I couldn't help but think about Keats on the Maria Crowther being rocked by the swell and fall of the waves beneath. Or how those same waters, during a violent storm off Brighton only a few days before, had quite literally moved into the cabin he shared with the captain, Thomas Walsh, and three other passengers, Joseph Seven, Mrs Pigeon, and Maria Cottrell, like Keats a consumptive sailing to Italy in a bid to restore her health. On the 31st of September, 1820, 
Moving waters carried other, more emotional connotations. It wasn't just that the sea itself was moving intransitively. The sea subject was moving Keats' object away from England and towards Italy. Stars were one way sailors plotted their course, fixed points that allowed them to orient themselves in the middle of vast, fluid and baffling oceans, far from the familiar signposts that normally give humans a sense of their identity. In my first reading of Bright Star, it wasn't hard to put my finger on a metaphor for Keats the lone artist navigating the choppy waters towards eternity. In 1817, he had described Endymion in almost exactly these terms. A long poem is a test of invention, which I take to be the polar star of poetry, as fancy as the sails, and imagination, the rudder. One inference was that Keats himself was the ever-changing, ever-uncertain sailor in artistic and romantic seas, searching the heavens desperately for a sign that all the effort, all the sacrifice, and all the suffering was worth it. If only someone, or something, could please tell him if he was headed in the right direction, and if possible, add that it was only a matter of time before he attained his goal. By September 1820, Keats was quite literally adrift, in quite literally moving waters, that were moving him, somewhat erratically, towards a future doing a fair impression of a black hole. If time was pressing in 1819, it was positively crushing now. But what the vision of Keats reading, if not writing, Bright Star on the Maria Crowther brought to my mind was not time, but space. This prompted me to reconsider that famous double deployment of steadfast. Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art. Only now without that second exclamation. The more muted tone is by turns more resigned and unsure. What does Keats mean here? Would I were as steadfast as thou? as steadfast as the bright star? Or would I were steadfast like you are, like the bright star is? All of which begs the poem's big question, steadfast how, exactly? In my time-honouring reading, I'd always taken this to mean unchanging, faithful, immortal. Steadfast as Milton Satan intended, albeit about hatred rather than love. Huge affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. The OED proposed an eye-opening secondary subtext which concerned eyes and a fixed gaze. One example can be found in Shelley's Leon and Cynthia. The serpent's neck sustained a crested head which warily shifted and glanced before the eagle's steadfast eye. As well as directing our attention to the direction of Keats' own eyes, were they on the prize of poetry or love or both? Did the motif of wide-eyed wakefulness, eternal lids apart, sweet unrest, suggest a poet battling insomnia, being kept up nights first by the thought of imminent failure and later by the thought of imminent death? As the Maria Crowther prepared to sail into the Channel and away from the English coast, Steadfast set itself rather differently, more like the soldier suggested by the Oxford English Dictionary who takes up a secure position and refuses to give an inch. The military subtext was not inappropriate. Writing not long before leaving London, Keats described the journey to Italy on more than one occasion in gloomily martial terms as a soldier marches up to a battery. 
The courage demanded by such an arduous journey wasn't the only reason Keats might desire to be steadfast like a soldier. Those moving waters were not just transporting Keats towards a dismal future in Rome. They were removing him from everything and everyone he held dear and seemed destined to lose forever. Parting, departures, separation were never far from his mind from the moment the Maria Crowther left London. Waters parted from the sea, as he joked during that terrible storm of Brighton, name-checking Thomas Arne's famous song. Read in this context, the lofty watches of bright stars' octet shimmers with beautiful light but conveys little warmth. Lone splendour suddenly sounds forlorn and, well, lonesome. Almost everything else is suddenly marginal, round Earth's human shores, or mediated a new soft-fallen mask of snow. Sat on the Maria Crowther, Keats must have felt he was already a lone star, exiled to the very edges of human existence, and not in a good way. Give my love to Fanny, he wrote to Mrs Braun from Naples, and tell her, if I were well, there is enough in this port of Naples to fill a choir of paper, but it looks like a dream. Every man who can row his boat and walk and talk seems a different being from myself. I do not feel in the world. In such a mortal predicament, the everlasting vision of the great poet, which Keats had described in spellbound and extraordinarily familiar terms only two years before, seems to lose its allure. There are many disfigurements to this lake, he'd written from Endmore, not in the way of land or water, no. The two views we've had of it are of the most noble tenderness. They can never fade away. They make one forget the divisions of life, age, youth, poverty and riches, and refine one's sensual vision into a sort of north star which can never cease to be open-lidded and steadfast over the wonders of the great power. But in 1820, it makes him a sort of noble voyeur, blessed with infinite sight, that now only confirms his removal from the human drama the moving waters, even the strange closeness of snow lying upon the mountains and moors. No. What Keats wants now, what he really, really wants, is the one thing he can't have. For steadfast to mean unmoving, immovable, stationary, fixed, and in a good and extremely literal way, as described by the sonnet's final lines pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast. In 1819, the separation from Fanny Braun was temporary, even if their prospects were unstable. In 1820, it was, as Keats feared and suspected, permanent. Is it any wonder, as he read these lines on the Maria Crowther, that all he wants is to be close to her, so close that there isn't any space at all between them? Not to see her in his mind's eternally parted eye, but to be near enough to feel her breathing, hear her breathing. For feeling means proximity, and proximity means life, even if life inevitably entails death. The ripening breast decays. Tender breath that is tendered will eventually be taken and not returned. All this pressure lands on two small words. The first is possibly Keats' favourite, still. In my original reading about time, it conveyed the hope that art could capture 
could still the ever-changing, ever-fleeting nature of sensual love, the ripening breast, the tender-taken breath. In the Maria Crowther version, it is the repeated use in the penultimate line that brings tears to the eye. Still, still to hear her tender-taken breath. If only I were with her still, still. What destroys the dream on the Maria Crowther is the inescapable absence of stillness, those moving waters moving Keats further and further away. The other still small word is so, and so live ever, or else swoon to death. There are echoes of the syntactic landslide around the opening lines, would I were steadfast as thou art. I had always read, and so live ever, as the sonnets culminate in hankering after immortality, where so equals therefore, and ever is prefixed by a silent for, and therefore, thanks to immortal poetry and love, live forever. Now I heard it differently, with an emphasis on the unstressed so to mean live like this or in this way, and live forever pillowed on my fair love's ripening breast, or else swoon to death. The revered Keats scholar H.W. Garrard famously found Brightstar a game of two halves, or to be exact, a game of four-sevenths and three-sevenths. The first part he venerated for its almost heroic gravitas. The second was condemned as inferior, even disastrous, wavering by comparison to the steadfast, eternal quality of what went before. The reason, Garrett concluded, was the ruinous shadow of a living woman falling on Keats' verse, like an eclipse. The haughty, off-hand, near-misogyny of Garrett's conclusion seems to want Keats to be the patient, sleepless eremite in reality, as well as his imagination. He might as well have said, I don't like it when the shadow of a living Keats falls upon his verse. This isn't to say Bright Star is perfect or free from absurdity. Pillowed on ripening breasts might strike the ear as ludicrous, Keats near his most puerile. It's also hard not to think of the million pop songs the sonnet helped inspire. When I fall in love, it'll be forever, or I'll never fall in love. In a restless world like this is, love is ended before it's begun, and too many moonlight kisses seem to cool in the warmth of the sun. I rather suspect Keats would have approved of Nat King Cole, the this-is and kisses, but what he might have thought of Aerosmith is more enticing. I could stay awake just to hear you breathing, watch you smile while you are sleeping, while you're far away and dreaming. I could spend my life in this sweet surrender, I could stay lost in this moment forever, where every moment spent with you is a moment I treasure. Don't want to close my eyes, goes the chorus, eternal lids apart, anyone. But then I imagine John Keats, age 25, alone, scared, despairing and grievously ill, stuffed into the bunk bed of the Maria Crowther's cabin, spitting blood and gasping for air, while the moving waters torture him with tempests or progress so final but so teasingly slow that two weeks after departure he could still change his mind and be back in Hampstead within the day, but at what cost? And so live ever, or else swoon to death. This most romantic of lines, 
suddenly sounds eminently practical, eminently real, to use another of Keats' favourite words. H.W. Garrod may not like that in these circumstances he chose Fanny Braun over to Autumn, but to deny him the option seems cruel as well as untrue. And just in case I sound a bit down on poetry, one remarkable feature of these enigmatic, deeply moving 14 lines is that all this lives on because of poetry. Bright Star is at once a celestial body, a heavenly symbol, a metaphor, an idea, and also a work of art that has connected John Keats with readers he couldn't see or hear or touch for over 200 years now. In this, his Bright Star reminds me of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Last Rook at the end of This Lime Tree Bower My Prison, a bird seen far above that unites him with his absent friend, Charles Lamb, whom he imagines sharing his wonder at its flight. My gentle-hearted Charles, when the last rook beat its straight path across the dusky air homewards, I blessed it, deeming its black wing, now a dim speck, now vanishing in light, had crossed the mighty orb's dilated glory while thou stoodst gazing. Or when all was still, flew creaking o'er thy head, and had a charm for thee, my gentle-hearted Charles, to whom no sound is dissonant, which tells of life. This in turn reminds me of Fanny Braun's parting gift to Keats, of a white cornelian oval, which she used when sewing to soothe her fingers. The hope now is they could hold hands, even while separated. No mere aid memoir this, no forlorn gesture, but a material object whose ability to touch the senses and the imagination rivals the finale of Bright Star itself. Months later, Joseph Seven would write to Mrs. Braun that in 26 Piazza di Spagna, Keats kept continually in his hand a polished oval white cornelian, the gift of his widowing love, and at times it seemed his only consolation, the only thing left to him in the world clearly tangible. Which brings me to a second and long-delayed explanation of why Bright Star has meant so much to me in the final weeks of 2020. Aside from the resonances of Bright Stars during the Christmas season, the poem speaks to a year when so many of us have, like Keats, been parted from loved ones by illness and by death, when we've yearned for living, breathing and feeling connections, but have had to settle for the remote consolations of staring at each other with eternal lids apart on Zoom, making endless phone calls and reading poems and books in lone splendour that might help us find hope in despair, light in the darkness, love in the midst of nothingness, for a tomorrow in the middle of a melancholy today. More than once as I plotted Keats' final voyage on Google Earth, I connected the extraordinary experience of viewing his agonised progress from the comfort of a 21st century satellite in outer space to the bright star watching the moving waters round Earth's human shores. Sometimes the contrast offered by 200 years of human progress felt absurdly wide, at others absurdly intimate. As 2020 transforms into 2021, I hope it isn't too long before you're together with your loved ones again. Until then, please stay safe, 
wear a mask, keep watching the stars and keep reading the poetry. for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Keats Shelley House and the Keats Shelley Memorial Association. You can find out more about the Keats Shelley House, including our history, collections and Keats Shelley 200 Bicentenary at ksh.roma.it. For news about 2021's Keats Shelley and Young Romantics Poetry and Essay Prizes, visit keatsshelley.org and click Prizes. To support the museum by becoming a friend or making a donation, stay at keatsshelley.org and click Support Us. This episode was written and presented by James Kidd. The music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Visit chriszabriskie.com.